Well, I understand. Okay, Stephanie's. If you don't have a card, I'm going to give you my business card, and you can send me a uh, an email. And uh, when she downloads it, I can send you a link so you can see the interview. Okay. Okay. All right. So I think we're ready to go. Uh, is my mask going to interfere? Can I keep it up? Keep it. Keep it up. I mean, it's that we all have faces for radio. <laughs> Welcome to Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Craig Manson, guest hosting with Penny Manson, and we're at Botricon 2023 in San Diego. We've got a group of authors with us here, Lev Rosen, Susan Calder, Alan Eskins, and Stephanie K. Clemens, and we're glad to have you all join our discussion today. We'll start off with just a little bit of each author, and then we'll just have a free-for-all discussion. So let's start off with Lev here. Lev, uh, you write historical fiction, I understand. Yeah, uh, my most recent novel and uh, the novel I have coming out in October are both 1950s historical mysteries. Where is it set? San Francisco. Having been born in the 1950s, it's hard for me to think of it as <laughs> historical, <laughs> but I suppose it is. Yeah, no, and I, I write young adults as well, and the mm. 90s are also considered historical <laughs> now, so it's a wide range. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your book that you have coming out soon. Uh, the Bell in the Fog is a follow-up to Lavender House, um, and it follows it. Andy Mills, who at the end of Lavender House was, spoilers, given an, an opportunity to set up his own private investigation firm over the Ruby, which is a gay club in 1950 San Francisco. And uh, having been a former police inspector, he is now trying to sort of make up for what he did as a cop and really prove himself to the queer community that he's a part of there by taking on these cases that are uh, for the for queer people. And uh, he's not having a lot of luck at this point because everyone knows he's a former cop and the cops and the queer community did not get along back then. Um, so he is thinking about throwing in the hat when he walks into his office and an old flame from the war is there with a lot of baggage asking him to solve a case. So this builds on the first, your first novel, Lavender House. Yeah. Okay. It works as a standalone. My editor was very keen on making sure that happened. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it builds on that. It's a follow-up, I think is the term we're using. Okay. <laughs> so you are traditionally published. Yes. And your publisher uh, is? Uh, Forge, Tor, Macmillan. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Okay. And um, shall we ask Susan? Susan, tell us a little bit about your book, where you're from, and just give us a little bite-sized information all about you. Okay, my name is Susan Calder. I'm from Calgary, Canada. My book is the fourth book in my Whodunit Murder Mystery Series, the Paula Savard Mystery Series. And Paula is an insurance adjuster. 
and she gets involved in suspicious insurance type claims. So she had one case where a man died in suspicious circumstances in a building fire. Another one was from the insurance angle. So she has reason to be there. But she winds up through her, her own initiatives, discovering things that the police don't, aren't able to access and gets involved in the crimes and, and solving it that way. And this last one, I said it right during the lockdown of COVID-19, which was really interesting and impacted the story in many different ways and how people could interact with each other and how they responded to the pandemic. And it becomes the background of the story. Would you call your book a cozy, a suspense, a mystery? A... Yeah, I really would call it like a whodunit type mystery. I don't think it's quite cozy, but it's and there's suspense aspects to it. But I don't think it would fit it quite into the cozy pack, uh, category. She, uh, it, even though I don't really have hard boiled things happening, or we don't see a lot of blood in in, in gore on it. It's a, a story of a woman's growth, I would say. She's in her 50s and we follow her. She deals with grown-up children and her mother and, and uh, those kind of issues that affect women who are about that, in that age group. Okay. Um, Stephanie K. Uh, Clemens, that's your, your nom de plume. Um, tell us about where you're from, first of all. Uh, so I grew up in... California, and I'm now in the process of moving to Oregon because I need a place a little less sunny for health <laughs> reasons uh, after having melanoma twice. Yeah. So we're saying goodbye to a lovely, lovely state. Uh, but I came out with a book, February 2022, uh, A Steady in Steam, which is the first of the Ladies of Black series. They are steampunk Victorian murder mysteries. And the second book, A Practical to Perjury, came out last November, and I'm working on the third book. It's about the first four women invited to university, and then when they get there, they run into misogyny, and a lot of people that don't want them there, including a lot of women that don't really want them there. And there's murder and shenanigans. Murder, that's, that would be a good title, Murder. Murder <laughs> and shenanigans. <laughs> yes. So this is your first book? Yes. Is this your first Botricon? Yes, it is. And how do you like it so far? Uh, it's been great. There's so much information that my head is a little spinny. Mm -hmm. I, think that, I think that happens to the best of us by day. You know, my, my day three shirt is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, <laughs> except bears. Bears will kill you. Yeah, <laughs> and moose. And moose, right. Bears and moose. Moose will kill you. All righty. And so Alan Eskins. Okay. And you're from Minnesota. I already got that down. And tell us a little bit about your book. Okay, uh, my book that's coming out this year is called Saving Emma. Um, I, all my books are standalones. I don't write a series, but at the same time, I write about a community of characters that I created in my debut novel, The Life of Barry. So in Saving Emma, my protagonist is Bodie Sandin. He had a, a minor role. He's a, a, an attorney, a law professor who works for the Innocence Project. He had a minor part in The Life of Barry. Um, I've since written about him as a teenager in 1976, growing up in Missouri, and now I'm writing about him as an adult, his own novel. Uh, it's born of, I, I was a practicing attorney, a criminal defense attorney for 25 years, and the story is born of a case I had where I was representing somebody who was in what's called the security hospital, um, 
when you are found not guilty by reason of insanity, they don't put you in prison, they put you in a hospital, but it's like a prison. And so Bodhi gets this case where his client believes himself to be a prophet named Elijah. And in my case, in real life, I was representing this, this man who believed himself to be a prophet. And I presented the case to this judge in terms of how do you know he's not? Um, when you go back and look in the Bible and you read about Elijah, you know, going around preaching naked for three years and uh, Balaam talking to his donkey and donkey talking back, you know, how do you know that today there are no prophets? It's just you know, we put them in security hospitals now. So that was the the seed for the story. Um, and it's it's a, a whodunit, but it's also a family story about Bodhi. He, he's the guardian for a ward, a 14-year-old girl who is Emma, which is the story's title. And Bodhi's trying to understand his role in this girl's life. You know, father, guardian, you know, what's his what's his role? And uh, that's that's the basic for the story. This is not your first book. It is my ninth book, yes. Nine. So you've been writing, you've been at this for a long time. Yes, I debuted in 2014, and I've done one a year since then, except for one year I skipped just to take a break. Traditionally published, self-published? Mulholland, um, Little oh. Brown. Great, great, great. That's that's really exciting. And you know, uh, talking about uh, the um, how we treat the people who are uh, having trouble with mental issues, you know, uh, it's becoming a real big issue uh, both politically and in our world right now. And we we um, I think that the writing community has really been doing an incredible job of stepping up to be a voice for uh, underrepresented voices in the community and in the world. And so let me just ask each one of you, um, how do you think we as a mystery writing community are doing with our welcoming uh, for diverse voices and, and uh, for both whether you're talking women, whether you're talking, because uh, that's where Sisters of Crime started with women writers, uh, for uh, gay and lesbian community. Um, and, and even there's a, I don't want to say if there's a bias to people from other countries, but uh, everybody is real hot right now on Iceland. Everybody wants to go to Iceland and read Neil. So I, but I, in my first Botcher Tom that I went to many, many years ago, nobody was talking about Iceland, you know. So how are, how do each one of you feel we're doing and where, where do you see rooms for improvement and how can we make it better? How can we make this a more welcoming community? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, by community, are we talking about readers or are we talking about publishers? Because in terms of readers, I have felt very welcomed as a queer person. Um, you know, I, I, I am up for the Anthony um, and people are reaching out and people I meet are very kind and very welcoming. Um, there are people who are not as welcoming, but that's everywhere. There's always room for improvement. Nothing wrong with saying that. Um, but if we're talking about publishers, I think that it's a different sort of scenario. Um, publishers like to go to what they feel comfortable with and what they can prove will turn a profit, which is difficult uh, because, you know, you're talking about any kind of minority voice. You need sort of a proof of concept that it's going to sell. And no one is willing necessarily to take those first chances. Uh, so, you know, I got a lot of rejections on this novel uh, from editors who I really love and respect, 
who found ways of saying subtly or less than subtly, mystery readers have no interest in gay people. Um, and you know, now I'm up for an award that's going to be voted on by all these mystery readers. So to me, they're wrong. <laughs> so when you said, am I talking fans, am I talking publishers, mm -hmm. I, speaking purely about something I haven't, haven't had the glorious opportunity to experience yet, don't publishers go where the money is and doesn't the fan base create the money? So it's like, if you, if you have a large enough fan base, won't they come? I mean, I think ideally, yes, but it's about creating that fan base. And although you can do that uh, before you're published, if you have some sort of fame beforehand, if you're like a social media star, mm -hmm. et cetera, um, Generally, that's the publisher's job, as far as I'm concerned. A uh, publisher might disagree, but <laughs> they might say, well, we publish you now, you get famous on social media. But that seldom actually works, especially not now with everything, sort of, all the social media sites sort of splintering and no one really knowing where to find their book news. And even more, I happen to be indie published or self-published, and I went that route, one, for control, but also because what I'm hearing in the publishing world is if you're an author and you're new, you're in charge of your marketing. You're in charge of doing a lot of the stuff that I already have to do because it, it's part of it. And the publishing world is behind, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like I think if I had pitched a steampunk Victorian novel, they'd be like, we haven't heard of that. And now there's, they're out there. Right, right, okay. More than just me or a handful of books, there's now like hundreds of them. And so I just think they, they fall behind. Isn't that the role, though, that conferences like BachaCon can do for, for writers is give you the exposure? So. <laughs> well, Susan, what, what's your perspective? Well, on? I can throw in as a Canadian. Um, a lot of Canadian writers say they pitch to U.S. companies and told well, we want you to reset it in the, in the United States <laughs> because we're a little country. And I always think, but you know, Iceland writers can be famous worldwide. Why can't Canadian writers? And it's always a, a discussion and a debate among Canadian writers. Should we really, you know, reset things in the United States to get the United States market? Or can any country like Iceland or Sweden or, you know, it's a story is a story. And I've 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 always felt that that it should be that that is how it is, that people will fall in love with certain stories. We have like, I don't know if you know Anne of Green Gables, but it's love yes. the world around. And yeah. it's set in the smallest little part of Canada. And I love that story as a child. Yeah. And the Japanese adore it. They they come for tourism to Canada to visit Anne of Green Gables. Uh, and so I, I do believe that any place can can have a great story. But it often, it, often Canadian writers run into this, that they can't crack the, the big U.S. market because we're a little country, not in size geographically, but in uh, population. Um, as, as a straight white male, um, <laughs> I have you know, some limitations in terms of what I feel I can write about without um, appropriating uh, and, and stepping on, on toes. But what I, the very first manuscript I wrote was a story about a young man coming to understand his own racism. And I didn't try and publish it because I didn't think it was ready. I wrote, you know, four of the novels first, became established, got a publisher. And then there was no problem publishing this novel, which I don't know if that had been my debut novel, 
if that would have been accepted in the post community, but I had a fan base, I had a, a track record, and it was a story that was passionate to me that I really wanted to write. Um, so that became my my sixth novel, I think it was, no, my fifth novel, um, Nothing More Dangerous. And it was a story that only I could tell because I was, you know, I grew up in an area that was, um, it had a latent, subtle racism that as a young man, I thought I read To Kill a Mockingbird and thought I'm not racist because I don't believe people should drink out of different fountains. But there was this undercurrent that I didn't realize existed until I left my hometown and went out and went to college and realized how backward I had thought when I was a teenager. And I that's is a story that I wrote because I wanted to exercise that ghost of me. Um, but like I said, I don't know that the publishers would have been jumping on that story if that had been my debut novel. Right. You had to have the fan base so that they felt they could take the risk. I'd like to think that people would have liked it and, and published it, but I don't know. People, people liking it and publishers publishing it are two different things. Exactly. That's what I'm hearing, yeah. right? Yeah. No, yeah. I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, you know, maybe uh, our at the next uh, Botticon, we should have a panel on wooing the public, wooing the publisher. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you get them on board with, you know, because so many people are leaving traditional publishing uh, for the control mm -hmm. to be able to, because, and, and I've heard this before that even uh, people who are traditionally published are now having to do a lot more of the marketing uh, that is that they used to only have to do if they were independently or indie published. It really varies depending on essentially your advance uh, and like how passionate. Essentially, the thing about traditional publishing is it's not just you. It's not just you in charge. So you need to get a whole team on board, enthusiastic about everything. And if that whole team is enthusiastic, then great, and they're going to work hard. Uh, but you know, they are overworked. You know, you talk, about, you look at publicists, pub even editors. They have way too many books to put out a year that they can handle, and so there's only so much enthusiasm. So if your book is the one that they look at and they go, "Oh, this one," you know, even unconsciously, because I think they do generally love all their books. Uh -huh. But like, if they look at it and they're, "Oh, this one," like they're they're going to subconsciously put that little effort in. And like, so sometimes it can really vary. I have, all my books have been traditionally published, some by indie presses, some by uh, the big four, <laughs> um, five, whatever number we're at. Uh, and, um, you know, it, in my experience, it just can vary, not just house to house, but book to book. Uh, you know, the, the, passion that comes out and the response that they see from readers so one thing as readers if you are interested in the concept of a book pre-order that book express excitement go to your bookstores that's going to let uh the publishing people know oh this is an idea that people are interested in this is something that people want to hear and that's how you sort of train publishing into acquiring more diverse voices isn't it a chicken and egg sort of thing, you know, that the, the publishers have a preconceived notion of something that mm -hmm. the public thinks that, that they'll like, and the public is thinking something entirely different, and the publishers then have to sort of recalibrate their own thinking about it. Yeah. And, and 
that's where it seems to me the disconnect comes. Yeah, and there's also sort of a system where you sort of bake in your own prejudices. So like yeah. if there's a book from a voice that hasn't been heard from much, it's not going to get a giant advance. And because it doesn't get a giant advance, it has a smaller publicity budget. And because it has a smaller publicity budget, it doesn't do as well. And because it doesn't do as well, the next time there's a book by that minority voice, the, the, the publishers are going to point and be, oh, it didn't do too well. Yeah. So we have to give it a small advance and it just keeps going and going. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And then even more interesting in the, like, talk about things, there's an author, because uh, I also do some fantasy romance, Ruby Dixon, who is a pen name for what I understand is a very well-known traditionally published author because she's doing Ice Planet Barbarian romances. So alien, human, mixed romances, which took off on TikTok like two or three years ago and is now being traditionally published. After like 20 years of her doing it on her own, now it's picked up because it hit big. Mm -hmm. And it's this interesting, like, again, what came first, and I can't, I've seen brilliant TikTokers get their books public, like picked up early on by a publisher just because they're really good at telling their story on TikTok. Like one came out yesterday, uh, Assistant to the Villain, got picked up by Berkeley, I believe. And it's all because she did. She told her story for a year as her, she was writing, doing episodes on TikTok about her story mm -hmm. as one of the characters. And so it's got a huge following. It's going to do great. It's going to. I bought it because I watched her <laughs> journey. Well, it becomes the proving ground. Somebody puts it out there mm -hmm. for free, and that, and then when the publishers see that it really works, and they they want to they want to jump on it. Yeah, I think really research. Nobody can really foresee what's the next big thing. That's mm -hmm. always the thing, whether you're a reader or a publisher. People and publishers probably want something that's familiar, but just a little bit different that pushes the envelope a little bit more. And we don't really know it till we get it. So it's probably an impossible situation. Familiar, to, but fresh. That's yeah. what I always tell my students. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to know exactly. But if you're well, writing to become the, the next big thing, you might be writing for the wrong yeah, reasons. of course. Um, I, I, I love writing because I just love in my own head telling stories and putting them on paper. And the fact that people you know, buy my books still amazes me. Um, but my publisher, an earlier publisher, once tried to get me to write a series based on one of my characters, and, and I didn't want to do that. Nice because that's not who I am. It's not what I want to. It's not, mm -hmm. It doesn't bring me passion to write somebody else's story. So. Um, I just sucked my guns and, and I'm enjoying the journey much more. So what's the one thing I haven't asked you, we haven't asked you, that you would want someone listening to know about you or your book? Books, book, books. What's the, if, if Pam always says, these are like little bites of the apple that give people a taste to want to go back and eat the rest of the apple. Mm -hmm. So what little bite can you share in, in closing about you and or your book? One of the best pieces of advice I ever received from a, a writing instructor um, came from a writer named Terry Davis, who wrote a Vision Quest. And uh, he walked into class one day and wrote the word evoke on the blackboard. And he said, that's what it's, we're here to do. We're here to evoke emotion, understanding. We're here to evoke. And, and 
it changed my understanding of writing. I wasn't just telling a story to entertain. I was telling a story to try and get the reader to think and to, to feel, and that changed my perspective on writing. That's nice. Yeah, I think like what Alan said earlier, I'm I'm really writing the books that I want to write and I want to read and the story that I want to tell. And I'm really not, I've, I've given up being the next best thing. I don't believe that's, that's going to happen. If it did, it would be wonderful. So I think I'm writing the stories from that I, that I want to tell. And I see them as very human stories and they're about people and their growth and development and relationships. And that would be the kind of writer I am. Susan? I, I almost am a little bit the opposite. My idea of writing and what I love to write is stuff that's fun. So when you leave my book and my world, I want you just smiling and happy like you got a hug from your best friend. And that that's what I want you to leave with. So they're not, they might have some serious stuff in them, but it's all under this idea of just like, fun heroics or coziness um, that makes you feel good. I think the books that I try to write are the ones that I want to read. Um, and I hope other people want to read them too. Mm -hmm. Queer, straight, you know, the Lavender House and Bell the Fog to me are books that are classic noir, like the movies my parents raised me on, but with characters and you know a world that genuinely existed a history that genuinely existed that most people aren't familiar with so you know gay or straight if you are interested in that history and that sort of soft noirness of the movies then to me that's that's what would make you come back for that other bite of the apple <laughs> well as a reader and as an aspiring author I'm interested in people and communities and worlds. And I, I know that the gay community didn't just suddenly show up, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. I want to know about the world you inhabit now and the world you came from that got you here. And I want sometimes books that are like a hug for my best friend because I've had a particularly God awful day. And I need, I need to escape to that place. And yet I also need books that evoke that emotion of, oh my God, I've, I've never walked in the shoes of a white man, you know? And there are, I, I, I can remember the moment when I realized that there's a minority I too could be prejudiced and bigoted. And, you know, and it was like, I thought that I, I didn't, I didn't get to get that. I didn't get to have that because I was black, a black woman, you know, and I want to know about stories that are that are from other countries that are Canada. And and I want to hear your story and I want to know where you got those earrings. And I want to know uh, <laughs> my sister. <laughs> she's wearing book earrings. Yeah. So I want to know all of those things. And I think that is what is so magnificent about this writing community is that there's something all of us here. And that excites me a lot. That excites me an awful lot. Well, this has been fun. Yeah. We're, we're out of time here. But uh, 
I hope you enjoy the rest of, of VajraCon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Hope you enjoyed your experience here. We didn't hurt yeah. too much. <laughs> it was a great pleasure meeting all of you. Yes. 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 You have a little soothing voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, 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 this little oasis from the madness and chaos yeah. that's out there because yeah. it, it can get a little crazy. Thank you so well, much for joining us. Forward to seeing you all at Bajracom. Oh yeah, it's still where we have to Yeah, <laughs> that's right.